well, we're still not ready, but we're not not ready. <laughs> so here we are. Welcome to the second episode of Gathering Space. We've got to live and to love and to pay the rent. While we're waiting for more clarity on how to do that without destroying everything, we're going to spend some time making this podcast. We're here to heal our stories around worth, work, and making ends meet. Maybe you'd like some of that too. If healing justice is your thing, if in your heart there's no creativity without accountability, if a little tenderness around living, loving, and paying the rent is needed, then you're welcome here to gather a little space too. This episode of Gathering Space is being recorded March 23rd at 5.57 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. This podcast is being recorded at the place where the two rivers meet. Gathering Space is committed to learning and practices of decolonization and believes that Indigenous liberation is an essential precursor to the well-being of us all. It feels important to note at this time that our land acknowledgement is not a land acknowledgement, and it's not not a land acknowledgement. It's a place of learning about acknowledgement and decolonization in our roles as settlers to this land and it's like the rest of this project going to evolve over time. Uh-huh. So for this episode, year one, month one, week two, I'm here with my beloved human, Tiffany Sostar. Um, I'm going to let Tiffany speak for himself. Um, okay, I wrote a little script. And then we talked about whether I would read the little script. Um, I think I will. Would you like to? Is that okay? Yeah. All right. So this is what I wrote on my phone five minutes ago. Great. All right. So my name is Tiffany. Um, I really struggle with intros and bios, partly because I'm interested in a lot of different things and I have trouble figuring out which parts of myself are relevant at a given time. Um, I have multiple projects on the go, and that's true right now as well. But for the purposes of this podcast, um, I guess especially today and in this next little while, I'll be focusing on my narrative practice and my tarot practice. So both of these are about stories, how we tell our stories, how we understand the stories we've been told, and how we receive invitations to explore our stories. I'm also a community organizer in the non-monosexual and trans communities, and I'm bisexual, polyamorous, and non-binary myself. Um, I'm also a step-parent, and I live with chronic pain, and all of those things inform both my narrative practice and my tarot practice, and, like, all the rest of my life. <laughs> it's oh just all a mishmash. It's hard to, like, boil it down. That was amazing. That was an amazing, <laughs> amazing distillation. Tiffany, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. A pleasure. I'm so excited that we're collaborating. <laughs> Tiffany and I have a history of um, collaborating on projects that are involving uh, practice and time-oriented practice, mm-hmm. whether it's daily posting or weekly observance or monthly rituals. So um, I'm really grateful to be doing this with you. Me too. Um, in your bio, you spoke about how bios are difficult because you're not sure which parts of yourself are appropriate at any given time, (laughs) which I really appreciated. And one thing that we noted when you were preparing your notes was I actually just chose not to really introduce myself (laughs) other than my name 
and casual mentions of my neurodiversity um, because I likewise really struggle um, with what parts to include and what to leave out and what's appropriate and what's safe and what's too much and what's not enough and mm -hmm. um, I, I wondered if you had any way of imagining a space where it there wouldn't be that sort of dance. Mm, yeah, well, so I mentioned that I do some organizing in the non-monosexual community. And so we talk quite a bit about coming out because as bisexual or pansexual or asexual people, our orientations are very rarely like legible, there's an assumption of monosexuality. Um, and so the coming out process is just like constant and there are expectations of disclosure and these expectations of disclosure also disproportionately impact the trans and non-binary communities. So yeah, like there there is a sense in a bio of like how much of myself do I need to share in order to be honest and honest in quotation marks because those are cultural norms of what parts of our identities other people have a right to know about. Um, and so when I imagine a space where there's not that tension, I think about things like how can we challenge narratives of the closet as like a repressive, oppressive space, how can we shift that? Um, there is a narrative therapist in Australia named Sekna Hamoud Beckett, and she works um, primarily in the Muslim community talking about shifting that narrative of coming out and instead talking about inviting people in. So what are the treasured and cherished parts of your identity that you invite sacred, welcome, trusted people into? So it's less about coming out and more about that invitation into a life. And I think sometimes shifting those narratives can be helpful too. Um, but, but we do live within this cultural context where there are expectations of disclosure and where disclosure is a political act. Like if I, if I say I am bisexual, I am polyamorous, I'm non-binary, um, that is part of my effort to create visibility to make those identities more legible so it's really complex and I actually don't think there is like I when I imagine what those spaces might be I just think they would be so different like we would have to shift so much but it's possible and it happens in small pockets there are bubbles of space where um, norms of disclosure have been shifted towards norms of invitation and like not making assumptions about each other so that we can bring curiosity to the interaction. I don't know, does that kind of answer? Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate that answer. Um, <laughs> it's generous to think of inviting people into a life. Um, what you said resonated with me a lot, obviously. Um, in my own life as queer and trans, um, neurodiverse and uh, pathologized with a, um, pathologized in a, with one of the big heavy pathologies. So there's like a, <laughs> mm -hmm. sort of this expectation to, um, I think you, you described it as honesty. 
um, there's this tension between an expectation of honesty in quotes mm-hmm. um, because what am I being honest about? Like, I just want to validate people's assumptions about mm-hmm. me. No, obviously not. But then also I have this sense of being the type of person I am and caring so much about my community, also wanting to stand up and say, you know, I am this, I am this, I am this. Um, there was a, a thing going around social media that I, I retur- like I reposted every time it comes up in the memories, which was, it says, you know, you don't, you don't post on social media in order to convince people to agree with you, but you post on social media so people who are like you, who are afraid to post, know that they're not alone. And so I feel like there's an ethics of disclosure for that purpose, mm-hmm. not for the other one, but our culture is oriented around disclosure in the other way. Mm-hmm. And I find that I can very quickly get caught up in my interpolation as an othered subject. And then I become really defensive when I'm writing a bio or introducing myself, um, which then, you know, strips vulnerability from the engagement, which then becomes very difficult um, for me because then I feel I need to step into the role of the expert or into the role of the, you know, please, sir, may I have some more? (laughs) Like, you you know, and either way, it's inappropriate. Like, I am neither of of those things. And, you know, this project, I spoke a bit last week about expertise and, like, I am vehemently um, opposed to the idea of this project being a program or mm-hmm. me being an expert or this is this is just an act of vulnerability and it's an act of creation and an act of co-creation because I'm a person who needs a project, you know, and this yeah. is the project that bubbled up um, and came into fruition, you know, over months of time. So I really appreciated that. Um, and I appreciated, too, uh, as a member of the, the secular Muslim community, it's a very, very tricky thing um, to consider queerness and Islam together. Um, not because Islam is inherently opposed to it, but to my read, in post-colonial Islamic narratives, post-colonial Pan-Arabian narratives in relationship to queerness, and also the ways in which the gatekeeping is done. So somebody is needing to leave the country because they're in a violent situation, but then they have to say they're leaving because they're gay, but saying that is in and of itself a violence, you know, it's such a a difficult thing. Um, and, I, I, and I say this as a secular Muslim, which, you know, to be clear, um, like, I, I, can't, I can't actually imagine into what it would be like to be mu'min, like a, a believer, a practicing Muslim, uh, and go through that. And I know how hard it's been for me as a secular Muslim. So um, I just really appreciated that, that you brought that level of um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, sort of the, the complexity of how multifaceted the situation is and how one facet can erase another. Like it's mm-hmm. like it, it's very difficult to consider them existing simultaneously. I mean, for the last three years, I'm constantly saying, I'm queer and I'm Arab. I'm trans and I'm Arab. I'm Arab and I'm white. I'm, you know, uh, like, um, uh, and I'm 40, 
and I've thought about these issues quite deeply and yeah. still, you know, I'm on a daily basis having to sort of reiterate that. So, yeah. Maybe we could include a link to some of Sekna's work with this podcast. I think that would be great. Let's definitely do that. She is amazing, and I have had the honor of actually seeing her present on her work a couple times, and it's phenomenal. Um, she significantly shifted my own approach to ideas of coming out um, and helped me understand, um, yeah, the narrative... The narrative of coming out is so um, dominant in our culture. Like we have coming out day and we have coming out monologues and we have like, and all of these things can be incredibly liberatory and powerful and can gather space for our identities. And they also can be differentially accessible and that differential access is just not acknowledged in those narratives. Exactly, and sometimes it's actually quite violently mm -hmm. opposed, as we saw in our own community here, um, you know, with the dissolution, resolution of Outlink and yeah. voices, and I mean, we're, we've been in our own community, been really actively um, engaged or disengaged with this issue, as the case may be. Yeah. And when we talk about closets, of course, I think about Audre Lorde and the master's house and the master's tools and like what, what that piece comes up and and then I think about my my own life and I think about how often when I'm engaging with um, presumed monosexual culture um, cis culture normative culture like you know we have the whole human imagination and what we've imagined is that I am in this closet but my closet <laughs> I mean, there are problems with C.S. Lewis, so uh, just forgive, please. But my closet is essentially Narnia, yeah. right? But f when I'm engaging with somebody about coming out, they're seeing this tiny, cramped, full of clothes that don't fit closet, you know. Yeah. That's a whole other thing, too. So I'm, a, I'm really appreciating the space that, that your bio has made for, for this conversation. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, so... Um, this project, as I had mentioned last week, for me is structured astrologically. Um, again, it doesn't center astrology, but astrology creates a scaffolding um, through which to understand this project for me. Uh, and, and so it's important for me to share that and uh, see where we all collect around that. So this first month, we are talking about the first house. And as I mentioned last week, um, the astrological house system is divided into 12 parts and the human life progresses from the first through the twelfth uh, in terms of age, but also all twelve are active throughout the life and to different degrees um, depending on perfections and other things uh, during the life. But for the sake of this first year, we are just simply going to talk about the locations of these houses, where they fit in our lives, and, um, uh, and just use that as a way to to gather space around those individual areas of life. So we're not trying to work on all 12 <laughs> items all at the same time, all the time, which is kind of how I feel like I'm working if I don't have a project, which for me is yeah. not effective. So as much as I say, like, I am not an expert and I am not, I, um, I also do have a habit of deferring to expertise. 
So for example, if I am in a foreign country and I speak the language of that country, but I am with a person who speaks that language with less of an accent or more fluently, I will not speak around that person. I will defer to their expertise, um, largely because I, I think it, it would then be less offensive for the person that's being interacted with. But I recognize there's also something going on internally for, for me with that. And so with astrology, it's a. I just want to really acknowledge that, although I've been studying astrology for many many years, um, and I have a teacher that I work with, and I of course read, um, many current authors on the subject and follow current authors on the subject, I, um, I am struggling now to be in this position where essentially I am teaching a little bit about astrology because I don't, I don't feel knowledgeable enough to teach. Um, and also because one of the people I really admire, a current astrological writer named Demetra George, um, Demetra George has an entire volume coming out in May, I believe, on the house system specifically. So I feel like, <gasps> how can I talk? about this when I haven't read um, Demetra George's obviously brilliant work on this, even though I have read several other volumes and of course I've downloaded her webinars and things. But anyway, so I just want to um, put all that out there. So when I speak about the first house, I want to say I'm not going to speak about it in granularity. I am just going to speak about the points that sort of feel most meaningful and most accessible to me at this time and maybe as the years of the project unfold there'll be more granularity that unfolds with it. Mm -hmm. Does that feel? Yeah. Okay? And as you were talking, I was thinking about um, one of the kind of guiding principles in narrative practice is the idea that when someone is in the middle of um, either responding to a problem or resisting a problem or um, learning something, there is valuable insider knowledge that is there when you are in the position of engaging with either that new learning or that problem. So I actually think it is possible to teach from the learning position and to share knowledge as you acquire knowledge and be um, like a co-creator of new knowledge without being a quote expert, which it sounds like is what you're leaning towards, moving towards. Yeah, that's <laughs> definitely the hope. <laughs> um, uh, that's lovely that there's a, a narrative uh, acknowledgement of that. And it made me think too of, you know, early um, Zen teachings I'd experienced about beginner's mind and mm -hmm. that it's actually a desirable thing um, mm -hmm. to not have all the shortcuts. So all right, emboldened by that, then let's talk a little bit about the first house. So um, the first house is where the life emerges. Um, so in a chart, one's ascendant line is almost always in the first house. It's the a point of horizon in which um, there's some dispute around exactly the right time, whether it's the actual emergence from the body, the first breath, et cetera, et cetera. And I will just leave it to everybody to settle on what they settle on. For me, I think the, the time that's available, that's accessible to you, that is as accurate as possible, is the best possible time to consider. Um, by which I mean, if we are casting our own astrological charts, if this is something that's new to folks, you can go to astro.com and you can put in your um, 
date of birth, your place of birth, and then your time of birth. And it's preferable to have your time of birth to the minute. And it is important in astrology for that to be as accurate as possible because particularly in whole sign um, houses, well, in all astrology it's very important, but um, the house of the ascendant changes very rapidly. So uh, it becomes really important to be as accurate as possible. Um, anyways, so the first house where the life emerges comes with the audacity of life itself. And so um, as we spoke last week about what it's like to, uh, um, actually I don't know if we spoke about this last week or if I was recording something else, so uh, what I will say is there is an audacity to taking one's first breath. It's never an accident. An infant is not born into this world and just accidentally inhales. It is, it is a very conscious act to shift from being lungs filled with fluid, uh, well lungs actually not filled with fluid, but surfactant anyways, lungs not filled with air to lungs filled with air. It's a thing, <laughs> and it happens with intention. And um, there's an audacity to that, just like when a seed creates a root system, but then the, the tender shoot comes above the horizon. There's an audacity for that plant to push through the earth. So that is associated with the vernal equinox in the northern hemisphere. Um, and I must uh, apologize to anybody in the southern hemisphere because I have not figured out a way to authentically wrap my head around astrological material and the southern hemisphere. Um, so more on that another time. But for now, again, none of that matters because what we are talking about is the first house. Regardless of whether you have a chart or don't have a chart, whether you care about astrology or don't, it is Saturday and we are alive and that's what the first house is about, life itself. Mm. So, uh, in astrology, uh, in, in, um, Hellenistic astrology, the first house was titled Helm, as in the helm of a ship, as in the place from which the entire life is steered, which is something I like to consider, um, particularly because anytime I look at somebody's chart, I don't think, oh, smooth sailing for you all your life. I mean, everybody's chart is like, oh, this there's some compression here and some expansion here and some talent here and some uh, challenge here. And so... Uh, I like the idea of life itself being that, that large ship steering wheel. Anyway, um, modern astrology will think of the first house as um, the house of the body, an actual physical life, uh, so an ill-aspected first house um, according to modern astrology, which can be incredibly ableist and sanest. Um, an ill-aspected first house would indicate maybe living in a pain body or um, maybe having a shortened life, um, maybe having a life that is, lends itself less to, uh, capitalist production. Um, so also for the purposes of this project, I want to consider not thinking of life in that exact fashion. And so for the purposes of this project, um, as I mentioned last week, the first house is about where life force, which is whatever you believe in that lent to your being alive, so whether that is a supreme being or whether that is, you know, chance and chemicals, uh, you know, um, the miracle of all of it, no matter how you look at it, it's kind of miraculous, um, where that life force meets our vitality, which is our day-to-day -day aliveness and our day-to-day -day ability to support our aliveness in the world. Um, so when we, when I'm talking about first house, when we're talking about practices this week, 
let us just consider that we are alive and that life can comes from this combination of life force and vitality. Um, when you were talking, I was thinking about how... Can I swear in this podcast? Mm, preferably not, because I'd have to bleep it or list it on iTunes as explicit. Okay, so I was thinking about how amazingly audacious it is to exist in a disabled body or a pain body or... Um, a trans body or a visibly queer body or a racialized body. Um, and I use the term disabled intentionally because many people in the Crip community identify disability as an important identifier, an important and not pathologizing, acclaimed identifier. Um, that is audacious. Exactly. And like vibrant, like the intentionality of staying alive in bodies that normative capitalist culture does not want to support the living of that is um yeah i think that is that is audacious and like beautiful i think painful difficult challenging but made that way by the ablest, sanest, non-supportive structures around us. Yes, and thank you for for um, bringing up the difficulty and separating that from inspirationalizationing, right? <laughs> like it's this is it's not about overcoming the pain body in order to miraculously become a super crip and uh, you know whatever do all the things. Um, actually, and here I'd like to reference the work of Danielle Pierce. Uh, who, well, I will put a link in the bio and speak more extensively about this work in future episodes, but um, how it's very important to consider um, this actually in reference to how we discussed the closet mm -hmm. at the beginning of the episode, because there's this idea of disability as this very cramped, uncomfortable closet, and there is discomfort, but actually, for me, crip community in my body, in mad community, um, it, I like... Uh, it's Narnia plus Alice in Wonderland plus everything great about Octavia Butler plus, you know, it's just um, expansive and vast, imaginative, creative, vibrant, delicious, lovely, sexy, wonderful. Mm -hmm. And and also it's an inside joke. Um, Danielle is very fond of saying that um, um, in the sort of... in. Um, the able, able-bodied or body typical, or I don't even know what is that community called. Anyway, um, <laughs> in that world, um, you know, there's a saying about how you know you laugh until it hurts. But in the crip community, we laugh because it hurts, and I think it is so so important to consider that. So we have on our list of things to talk about next, um, which we started talking about just now. Do we want to talk about life force and vitality when we're in uh, a pain body, uh, a disabled identity, a person experiencing disability um, as constructed, um, a person experiencing disability related to access, um, or also a person whose body, body, mind, brain are medicalized? And, you know, there's, there's such a range of engagement there in terms of compliance, resistance, repudiation, et cetera, et cetera. Do we want to talk about any of that? 
Yeah, I think it would be worth talking about. Um, now that the topic is like on the table between us, I'm like, oh gosh. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> like this is this is now a three hour episode yeah. to start a whole spin off podcast. I um one thing that I think about though is I wonder about the narratives of life force and the narratives of vitality. And so I am tempted to turn this over to listeners to engage with, like, what does it mean to be alive? What is the definition of a life worth living? And who set that definition? And do you agree with that definition? Have you seen alternatives to that definition? Have you seen people living lives with vitality that do not fit that definition of a life, quote, worth living? Um, I know that I certainly have, and when I see those lives, it makes more possible in my own life. Um, yeah, so I just wonder what would happen if we had kind of a collective conversation about what these narratives are and where they come from. Mm. Um, I also want to acknowledge that, like, you, Nathan, particularly, have been so generous in reflecting back to me an image of myself as having vitality that I often am not able to access. And I think that that's... Um, I want that to be part of this discussion, that we don't have to feel alive and feel our life force and feel our vitality ourselves. I, I would like to reject and resist cooperating with that kind of individualizing. Um, there are many times when I am frustrated with how slow I am because I'm in pain or because I'm dealing with, like, whatever. It just feels like there's just... A perpetual state of allotness um, and you will say you but you're generating so much and then I can look at what I'm doing and see that there is um, generative work there even if it happens in bed and is nothing more nothing more quote-unquote than thinking or engaging with a topic like that collective piece to vitality and to recognizing vitality also feels important to me Mm, yeah, thank you. I think it's vital. I think it's actually the closet door. Like, if there's a distinction on either side of those doors between our communities, it, I think it would be that, um, that we exist collaboratively and collectively and in connectedness. There's a wonderful book, um, Care Work. Um, oh, do you have it here? Anyway, uh, I'll link to that as well. Um it's, it's, it's a wonderful read in this regard. Um, yeah, I will put a link to that. I think, too, I want to be really careful about uh, using the word generative and not confusing generative with productive and mm -hmm. production. Um, really, it's like a constant effort to liberate um, one's existence from the means of production yes. in any form, um, particularly in early capitalist times, but... I think it's it's very important to consider, you know, sometimes we'll have these conversations. Often, I mean, we don't see each other all that often, considering how often we interact, but we'll be on Messenger um, back and forth, and 
you know, if, if we consider, um, like, generating the breath, generating uh, any space, any millimeter of space to consider possibility through a specific pain moment or through uh, a compression that's I imposed externally, um, through issues we're having in parenting and partnering, um, in being pleasurable and feeling pleasure, uh, you know, all of those pieces, um, generating space in and of itself, yeah, I think is 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 the the most important piece that happens in community reflection. There is the ability to breathe. Um, your work, I mean, I was drawn to you. We met years before we met because I'd read your Facebook posts and I could breathe differently. <laughs> you know, when I'd read them, likewise, when I read Danielle's research, um, I, I would breathe differently. Uh, when I read Lindsay Eels's work on mad subjectivity, my body is different. Uh -huh. um, and that little bit of space is, you know, often in social narratives of living in pain, body, pain, mind, however you want to talk about it, there's this idea like take two gratitude and call us in the morning. Um, just find a little bit of hope, or live for your children, or whatever. Whatever the things are, the anchors are always supposed to be external and are always like this indication that we should sacrifice our acknowledgement of our experiences of pain in order to uh, interlocute socially, mm. to be socially acceptable in our pain, and mm -hmm. also to overcome our pain and create something larger than pain, you know, or to martyr ourselves through our pain, whatever, uh, which I am just not interested in in any way shape or form yeah so I just wanted to to speak really clearly to that and this is the beautiful thing about the first house is you know productivity that's a later house that is not what the first house is about the first house is about being alive are you alive are you in a body are you on the planet great <laughs> that is a miracle that is your miracle of the first house so yeah. when you talked about thinking about narratives of life force and vitality, this is where I would consider another question, which is how do we liberate the idea of life force or the idea of vitality? How does life force and vitality become non-punitive? Mm -hmm. um, how does it become something we don't hurt ourselves with or on, but also drive ourselves with and toward? Like, where is that in-between space? And how do we separate it from capitalism and from the idea that you have to earn earn your life oh, yeah. earn the things that make your life possible that there is some um, minimum level of uh, production whether that's like capitalist production or performing your need well enough and in the right way to earn the things, to earn even the ability to say I'm alive and my life has value and worth. Well, and to earn the access to the social supports that might yes. make your life possible yes. too, right? There's a huge level of performativity mm -hmm. that goes with that. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And barriers to access, yeah. And, and what is vital about grieving and lamenting and what is vital about anger and frustration, like all of the things that are not part of the performance that is 
acceptable for people living with a pain body or a pain mind or living with intergenerational trauma or living in poverty. Like, there are so many ways in which there's vitality there, but how do we liberate access to it? Yes, and how our, um, how the vitality um, sort of shifts around. So, for example, there's actually a vitality to hopelessness mm-hmm. to, for me. I, uh, there is uh, one of the, the biggest moments of my life was when I was able to admit publicly and on social media at four in the morning that I am a person who uh, considers suicide on a regular basis, not like a casual option, but thinks deeply about it and wonders about how and where and um, the ethics of it and etc. Um, to be able to speak about that honestly, publicly, uh, as the mother of two very young children, um, you know, that was a that was a big deal. So there was something liberatory in going to that space of deep hopelessness that I was experiencing at the time. It, Robin Williams had recently died and this, the social discourse was uh, so wretched, of course, as it always is. Um, and yet then beyond, you know, after a while though, that place was not feeling good and I got really angry and there was something so enlivening about my anger. Then I wanted revenge and there was something so enlivening about that. But getting st- stuck in any one of those places, which is very easy because you create like a bio of your relationship to disability, yeah. it, it, it becomes itself can can lose its sort of dynamic vitality it, it becomes something more crystalline um, more brittle and and a problem because you need to know when to pull it out at mm-hmm. any time so for example with this podcast one worry I have about creating something on a schedule for example is well, I'm supported. I, I, I was a high school teacher before I went out on disability. I received disability benefits. Is this something that my insurance provider would look at and say, well, you're, if you can do this, then surely you can do this and this and this. So surely you should stop doing these things that are making you feel alive and then, you know, return to the classroom, for example, which is its own set of ethics. But, um, you know, that I even had to consider that before doing this and even had to contact my insurance provider and say, hey, I'm going to do this project. Is that a problem? Um, That's, you know, it's a thing. Yeah. Uh, And I recognize I'm speaking from a place of absolute privilege that I did have um, insurance, a disability insurance, um, because I had a good unionized job that fought for it. Um, You know, so I just want to acknowledge that as well. I mean, lots of people don't have the luxury to to be able to be supported in disability, in remaining alive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I like to think about, I mean, um, I'm a very, um, astrologically speaking, I'm a very Saturn-dominant human. Uh, very, very many Saturn-oriented parts of my chart, um, particularly in the sixth and seventh houses. So, um, sorry for astronauts, that's for astronauts non-astronauts, it just means that there's a part of me that really um, is very uh, practice-oriented, work-oriented, moving things through the hands, and I'm very, um, I have very, very Earth-dominant chart. We'll talk more about this in future episodes, but what that would mean um, is that, for me, I really need things to be material. 
um, I love theory and there's like a sort of a, a quicksilver feeling to it that I, I really enjoy. Um, but I also always needed, need to ground it in the material. So for myself, when I consider life force and vitality, um, there is an embodied experience of, um, being in my body and being aware of what's happening, being in my mind, with my mind, witnessing it in whatever ways, um, feel productive and possible for me. But also I like to think of practices and when I think of practices associated with life force and vitality, I think of the words nurture and nourish. And the idea is that life force is not of our control, it's of our concern, um, but not of our control. And so we can nurture it, we can invite it, we can support it, we can feed and water it, um, we can create um, altars and rituals toward it, we can build habits that support it, but um, we can't contain or control it. So I want to consider nurture. And then on the other side, with vitality, that is in our area of control for as long as life force is cooperating. Um, vitality is what we offer of ourselves and of our lives, what we generate within ourselves, within our lives, and within our communities uh, in order to feel vital and alive, the way that we reflect that um, among ourselves, between ourselves, within ourselves, the way that we shed, constantly shed the things that are killing us, um, the things that are rendering us invisible, the things that are um, containing us, um, binding us, uh, etc. Those are those are vitality producing. And of course, it's really tricky because the vitality industrial complex in capitalism is enormous. Mm -hmm. Go for a run, get some gratitude, sign up for this program and that program. And, you know, there are many, many vitality experts Manifesting. Manifest it all. life. And I really, I believe in manifestation. I mean, I just spoke about being an earth, earth being and manifesting is actually what it is to make something literal. But yeah, exactly. There's that whole way of understanding it that is, uh, feels sacrilegious to me on a spiritual level, but also it, it has been very violent. I've experienced it as a violence. Yes. Um, and I found myself like in that way of catering the bio, you know, I don't like to admit that I believe in something sacred because I don't want to be associated with that, yeah. you know, <laughs> for example, or like I have to have this whole preface, but, uh, but not this, but not this, but not this, but not like that. But mm. so, um, in this case though, with vitality, we nourish it. We literally feed and water it. I mean, that's what we can do to nourish our body. We breathe, we eat, we drink, we sleep. Those are, mm -hmm. we defecate. Like those are the things, the basic nourishments. But anyway, so um, what I'm wondering is if, Tiffany, you want to talk about at all any practices that you have of nurture or nourishment, or if you want to just talk about nurture and nourishment in general. Mm. Yeah, I, so I make London fogs. Um, and so I buy um, the best Earl Grey I can find and I get the best vanilla I can find and the best milk I can find and I am incredibly thankful that at this time in my life I can um, pay for those luxuries mm -hmm. and they are luxuries and then I make a London fog um, I steep really strong 
Earl Grey tea. I add vanilla sugar and vanilla extract, ideally double fold vanilla extract. Then I microwave milk and froth it with a battery powered little whisker. And then I pour the milk into the tea. If I'm having a particularly high pain day, I put the tea into my octopus mug, which is a gift that someone gave me. It's a blue mug with um, tentacles all around it. I love it. Um, that practice grew out of a many months long period when my fibromyalgia had not yet been diagnosed and I was rarely able to leave my house and I spent a lot of time on my couch. I was suddenly not able to bake, which had been what I did to nurture and nourish myself. I couldn't stand for that long and I couldn't like knead bread. And but I learned how to make a London fog and I could stand even on my worst pain days. I could have a chair pulled up to the counter or I could stand for the five to seven minutes it takes to make a London fog. And that became, um, I became kind of known for them. I was able to invite people over. They could come into my home and I could feel like I was offering something to them, whereas before the London fogs it just felt like I was sitting on a couch, sad all the time because I didn't know what was wrong with me. I was doing, you know, elimination diets and all that stuff. Um, so when I think about how I nurture and nourish, the London fogs are like such a critical piece of that, not just because I love the way they taste and I love the ritual of them, but also because they allowed me to connect with people in a way that felt more mutual instead of the like feeling like a burden. That idea of being a burden is one that we can talk about in future episodes. Yeah. I have a lot of mm. feelings about that, but mm. um, yeah, London Fogs opened up a way back into a feeling of myself as still having value despite what was going on in my body. Like for months there I lost my ability to read or write. I couldn't hold a sentence, so I couldn't write. And I write a lot. Yeah. I write a lot. It was a very, very hard time in my life. Um, yeah, and I don't know if you were looking for something quite that specific, but when you ask that question, that's what comes to mind. That, And I think about myself so highly valuing finding a way back to a life that felt possible and the London Fogs were what opened that door but it was my valuing of finding a way back that allowed me to find that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I feel so much kinship with you in this moment. <laughs> Thank you. Um, all my favorite crit people are attached to Earl Grey tea so it's, it's just it's funny for me when it, it comes up over and over and I'm I'm so thankful that you shared that specific practice. May I reflect a little bit yeah. on where it resonates? Yeah. Okay, thank you. So, as you were speaking, one thing that popped into my head was, how do we distinguish nurture and nourish? And I think that the interrelationship is between those two is the same as the inhale and the exhale. So together they are breathing, even though they're two distinct mm -hmm. parts of breathing and I was thinking in my own life first of all I've had one of your London fogs well I have had the luxury of having many of your London fogs <laughs> and they are delicious and I am grateful um, I too love the London fog and I was thinking about how 
when I was young, um, I would watch Star Trek The Next Generation on TV and uh, I was, you know, an early, early adolescence. Um, for myself, my experience of pain body began at birth um, and the trauma associated with it led to a lot of uh, what is easily pathologized as dissociation. So it's very difficult for me to actually be in my body. So for me, the point of nurture was frequently in imagination. So I read prolifically, I wrote prolifically. Can you read prolifically? I read a lot. Anyway, <laughs> I wrote prolifically and I imagined a lot and I took refuge in other people's imagination, particularly in science fiction and fantasy. And so when I uh, would watch Star Trek The Next Generation, which I recognize is so much neoliberalism, so much, so much of the genders. I, I mean, there are problems all over the place. It's, it's fine. Um, <laughs> but at the time, it was, a, it was um, a wonderful thing for me. And the things I found wonderful about that show were um, the character of Jean-Luc Picard mm -hmm. um, and his approach to leadership and also like how he loved the things he loved and how he did not like the things that he did not like. And, mm -hmm. and that was okay. Like he, he could bumble about children, you know, for example, um, I, I really appreciated, although I did not like the way that the character of Deanna Troy was, was portrayed, um, like she had a special plunging neckline uniform or whatever, like yeah. it, it just seemed so, um, and the way that empathy was portrayed as hyper feminine, for example, yes. um, you know, that I struggled with that, but to have an empath, um, I've found really validating. And I mean, I can go through each character and I won't, I mean, I could, I mean, maybe I'll make an outtake, <laughs> but, um, in each of the core characters, the bridge characters, I, I, I felt seen in a way that I didn't feel seen in my life and couldn't feel my own body, but somehow I could like live in their bodily experiences or what I was seeing of their bodily experiences. And I remember actually specifically developing a liking for Earl Grey tea because I wanted to be like the character of Jean-Luc Picard. And so, yeah, I would practice drinking Earl Grey tea hot. And <laughs> it was the Twinings yellow label. And to this day, I have, like, I always keep that around, even though I do buy, you know, nicer Earl Grey tea as well. Like, I... Sometimes what I need is the twinings, um, not need. Well, yes, need. I have a hard time with the difference between need and desire sometimes. Anyways, that's a different episode. But anyway, I didn't like it at first. You know, there's like an astringency mm -hmm. to it and learning how to steep it so that it's not oversteeped mm -hmm. and there's not too much bergamot and not too little and mm -hmm. not too hot. And it's, so there's a very Goldilocks thing about tea. Um, but I, for whatever reason, I persevered with this. And now, of course, it's like when I cannot do anything, even if I'm, I'm in hospital on a lockup psych unit, I can make myself an Earl Grey tea. That is there. And, um, and it is a point of access, whether it's sharing tea because somebody else is drinking tea and you're just casually parallel drinking tea and maybe you're going to say something to each other or not, or you're just beside somebody drinking tea, or... Maybe somebody else is having Earl Grey tea and you think maybe they have the Star Treks about them. Or, you know, you meet somebody wonderful who has an attachment to London Fogs <laughs> and that is their connection. And 
So I wonder if vitalizing practice, maybe in more mainstream, mainstream, I don't know, dominant narrative yeah. peeps, vitality is also about connection, but there's no um, major problem imagining that one could connect to the self by simply going for a run or having some gratitude but that it's not necessarily so easy to connect to the self when the self is uh, inaccessible in some way, in body and mind yeah. in some way. And so if I'm connecting to the self through proxy, then I can connect through community or connect through a ritual like you described through the smell yeah. of bergamot. I even carry bergamot oil when I'm really low because you can only drink so much tea, you know. It's true. So <laughs> I really love that you brought up that specific example, and I love that. Um, one thing that you talked about, you know, when you're sitting on the couch and sad and in that place of not even, you're not yet even in the place of no story. You're in the place of thousand, thousand stories, none of which fit. Yeah. Trying to figure out what's going on. You know, you feel like it's a burden to have somebody come over and even spend time with you that, yeah. that, that what you have to offer somebody is less, it must necessarily be less than what you have to offer yourself because, of course, there's that narrative mm -hmm. that we only offer from what we have to offer, except in our community, we actually tend to offer more than what we have to offer uh, anybody and yeah. especially ourselves. Um, but um, that you could make this small offering and that gave you enough value. Yeah. Um, to invite community, which brings us back again to the introduction and what we were talking about with closets. I had no idea our conversation was going to be so much about closets. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> um, so I guess if folks are listening, um, I want to, I don't want to cut off this discussion here, but we have more to talk about. Um, um, what are your practices of nurture and what are your practices of nourishment? And one thing that I wonder, one thing that I found very valuable um, when I got really into, like, I was pathologized and I was like, all right, I'm going to, like, get into the pathology and I got into scaling and I got into all the sort of cognitive behavioral um, mechanisms to understand how I was doing and to motivate myself or to force myself or to invite myself, depending on how I was using each tool, into another state. Um... I realized that um, for myself, I created like I had a nine point scale of possibility. Mm -hmm. And so when I was at a nine, uh, possibility was really quite effortless. In fact, I had to be careful to rein it in because, of course, for my pathology, there's that added bonus of the extra extra. Um, but that for every tool, I force myself on a grid, and this is maybe the Capricorn-Saturn thing here, to write like, okay, at a nine I can do this, at an eight I can do this, at a seven I can do this, at a six I can do this, at a five I can do this, at four I can do this, three, two, one, one is being in hospital. And and so, you know, to go from the like, go get the perfect London fog with the perfect friend at the perfect place, which I can do easily at a nine, mm -hmm. to just make it from the bed to the kitchen, find the hot water thing, hope the drawer's not too sticky, get the, you know, yeah. that it was accessible all the way. So one thing I would encourage folks, if you're listening to this and it's resonating for you, um, and you have a habit of beating yourself up with 
um, your practices of vitality, of having to do them perfectly, to consider ways that they're perfect at each level of accessibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that, that that itself makes things more possible or accessible. Yeah, and I kind of want to add one more question Please. that comes um, more from narrative practice and that I'm thinking of because of your discussion of Jean-Luc Picard. When you are thinking about your practices of nurture and nourish, um, can you trace their histories? Mm. Where did that come from and what legacy are you joining when you participate in that? Because I think sometimes that can be valuable too because we, we all come from long histories of nurturing and nourishing and being alive. Mm. Yes, yes. I really want to emphasize history, legacy, ancestry. I mean, we talked about it a little bit in the land acknowledgement, non-land acknowledgement on this episode, Um, but it will definitely be an ongoing theme throughout the house system. So thank you for bringing that up because first house is considered the birth. So you think about the birth as the genesis, like it's, we forget about legacy, ancestry um, in the first house and it's important not to, so thank you. Okay, well, this segues into our next segment so nicely. So, um, Tiffany, one of your practices, I think of both nurture and nourish, is your tarot (laughs) practice. Mm -hmm. It's been a lifelong project for you. Um, I want to say because it engages with every part of your life at every time in your life, even if you weren't practicing it. Um, Anyway, I will let you (laughs) explain that more thoroughly. Um, But I do want to mention um, that uh, as I've written on the website, which I probably should have plugged before now, www.gatheringspacepodcast.com. Each of the folks who are on this podcast um, offer services. So while this podcast itself is not a program and this information will always be free and readily available, um, if you want to book service with anybody who is on this program, that is possible. And so with Tiffany, um, there is the possibility to work with you as a narrative practitioner, but also through Fox and Owl Tarot, uh, which is such an incredible, uh, if you're interested in tarot at all, it's a, it's a liberation. <laughs> it is a liberation, a daily lived liberation of tarot, uh, in my experience. Um, Tiffany posts daily on a, on a card pull, posts frequently on spreads. It's, it's accessible to all bodies, all minds, um, and uh, well, every ephemeral level of existence I can consider, uh, which is a lot because I have a big imagination. Um, and so I would encourage you to follow uh, Fox and Owl Tarot on Instagram, on Facebook, and also um, I will. there is already on the website, if you go under people, um, a link to both of Tiffany's websites, and you can connect with Tiffany at your leisure if you want to reach out for narrative work and or if you would like to connect and trade some of your dollars for some support regarding your personal tarot practice or would like a reading um, for yourself. So I want to invite you to speak a little more about you and your tarot practice and Fox and Owl. And then also uh, I wanted to invite this monthly segment where you are producing a spread for folks to try out at home. Yeah, um, thank you for that introduction. Uh, so, Fox and Owl Tarot. Um, I was introduced to tarot 
at a particularly difficult time in my life and it really resonated with me. Um, I come from a Christian background um, that I no longer identify with and for a long time I didn't have a spiritual practice. Um, and then I found tarot and tarot sort of opened up for me the idea that there might be synchronicity out there that felt life-affirming. And there might be rituals and practices that connect me to cycles and to um, realities that are bigger than my small and sometimes painful life. And that felt really affirming for me. Like the journey through the major arcana of the tarot is just so validating of my own journey through life. And um, the very first card that I ever pulled for myself was the Fool. And I am someone who is constantly like heading off in a new direction. Um, I don't know if I will ever have a career that lasts longer than five to seven years because I just get really excited and then like, you know, I've done dog training and I really thought that I was going to run a bookstore and so, um, yeah, tarot just feels like it connected me back to a part of myself that I had lost when, when I felt like I needed to leave the Christian church. And the thing I love about tarot is that I think it can be valuable whether you believe there is a connection to something um, bigger or different or whether you just look at it as cards that are archetypes that can invite you to think about your life. One of the criticisms of tarot is that the card interpretations are so vague as to be meaningless they could apply to anyone, but actually I think that that is a strength of tarot, that it can invite anyone into a reflection on whatever it is that that card is talking about. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how I do tarot. And I am particularly interested in integrating narrative practice and tarot practice. So rather than looking at the cards as um, telling you what's happening in your life, I really like thinking about how can we look at these cards as invitations to answer questions about a particular part of our life. So explore the narratives around that. Does that kind of yeah, answer? Yeah, that's, that's okay. wonderful. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it got me thinking about how in, in the astrology community, there are a lot of astrologers who, like, uh, tarot is like the gateway to astrology and many astrologers will be like well I don't do tarot like it's like this there's this kind of <laughs> strange dis disavowal some astrologers are just all for it but often there's this bashfulness about like our secret love of tarot um, and anyways that curiosity just arose for me um, I think because tarot is um, well, both uh, practices invite the idea of the expert or the idea of the reader, the idea of the, you know, both practices require experience and training, whether it's through the self or um, through uh, teachers and rites of initiation, um, but that 
that because of the archetypal nature of tarot, there is a sort of um, a freer form to it. That said, astrology is so popular right now, and and you know where once people would talk about their sun sign, now everybody will talk about their sun, their moon, and their rising. Mm-hmm. Or are you reading? Uh, whole sign or like you know so astrology is I think also becoming this and now there's like a new sort of thing happening in terms of um, people uh, making tinctures and herbals and and things uh, based on times and which isn't new it's ancient Uh, um, these are ancient practices but I just mean that there's a very it's an interesting time to be in a spiritual community that in, embraces these arts and practices. Um, I think I might have lost my plot a little bit there. Uh, oh yes, um, one thing I wanted to speak about regarding tarot, um, in, in some ways people will say that the interpretation is so open so as to become meaningless, but on the other hand people will also speak about how the interpretations can be so rigid yeah. um, and exclusionary. Um, particularly around gender, uh, around um, ability um, that, uh, and also the idea of, like, what is divination? Like, what actually is that? And um, what does it mean to consider the future? What does it mean to reflect on on past, present, future? Which tarot is always, like, a three-part chord of, mm. of all time, you know? Um, what is it to reflect on those simultaneously and what is it to look at the cards and fear them to see the tower card and fear it the devil card and fear it um so i think that there's a lot of room for liberation in tarot practice which is why i find your practice so appealing as well because it's generous it's compassionate it's liberatory and it's specific it's not vague um yes okay thank you yeah no worries so maybe we'll stop here and then we'll set up the spread yeah cool Okay, so Tiffany, um, do you want to talk us through the spread that you have designed for this month? Or maybe, would you like to introduce the idea of what a spread is, perhaps, and then talk us through the spread? Sure. Okay. Um, so a spread is any pull of tarot cards more than one. Or actually, I think you could view a single card as a spread, too. You could have a single card daily spread. Anyway, so it's any time you're pulling tarot cards out of the deck and then interpreting them in some way. Um, and I had picked a spread for today, but then over the course of the conversation, I changed my mind. So perfect. we are doing a different spread. Um, the way that I approach a spread is always as a conversation with the cards. So if I pull a card for myself or for someone else, and it just does not feel right for the person that that card has been pulled for, we can pull different cards and swap them out. And um, I'm not going to talk about reversals today because it can get to be a lot, but reversals are another thing that I think like sometimes a card shows up reversed and that just doesn't feel right. So you flip it or it shows up upright and that just doesn't feel right. So you flip it. Like I really think that um, so much value can be found in how we first respond to the cards, how they resonate for us, and honoring when your gut says, actually, that's not right. Something else needs to come into this space. So, 
can I yeah. say one thing to that? Yeah. Um, the, the one thing that's coming up for me is, you know, I hear you say this, which I'm like, oh, it's so generous, so compassionate, and I could never do it. Um, so I just <laughs> want to um, speak um, to myself in my rigidity where I actually really embrace cards that they come up and I'm like, what? No. Um, but I might pull a clarifying card or a clarifying card. So I just mm-hmm. want to say that there's this other approach. If it feels uncomfortable to, to put a card back um, or to flip a card around, then to pull clarifying cards can yeah. be really, really helpful. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. There are so many ways to approach tarot. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, do what feels best and right for you. Trust that trust that you are telling your own story and that you actually are the expert in what you need and how you tell your story. Like, there are reasons that there are first-person perspective novels and omniscient third-person narrators and novels with multiple perspectives. There are so many ways to tell a story. So just trust yourself as the person telling your story. Yes, good. So what I came up with for today is a three-card spread. The first card being, what is one of my stories of my life? So what is the thing, one thing that I am? And I think that you could pull a whole bunch of cards into this position because every person has many true stories of who we are. And then in the second position, how can I nourish this part of my story or myself? And in the third position, how can I nurture this part of my story or myself? Um, so Nathan, did, should we talk through the three cards that we each pulled? Yeah, I think it'd be fun. So, uh, yeah, I do too. And also my cards were like so sassy, so I'm just gonna <laughs> own that. So, um, in the first position, one story of me, I pulled the seven of pentacles which is a, um, sometimes like the work, work, work card. And the, um, you know, you're, you just, pentacles are the earth suit. They're about the material world, the physical body. Sometimes they're about, they, they really can't do intersect with capitalism um, in our current context, you, you can't really talk about the suit of money and work and materiality without engaging with capitalism. When I pulled this card, um, for myself after this conversation that we've just had, I was like, you know, I, I love anti-capitalist liberatory practice and also I am deeply invested in um, doing productive work in my own life. That is a way that ableism and capitalism show up in my life really, really, really super regularly. (laughs) And sometimes I love that because part of the work that I do is community organizing and responding to events in ways that invite collective action. Like that's good work. I want to keep doing that work. Um, but it shows up in problematic ways when I am not able to show up and suddenly can't see my own value because I don't, I'm not doing that productive work. So yeah, so that's one of my stories and it really resonates for me. And then, um, how can I 
nourish this part of myself and my story, I got the Eight of Wands. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I can nourish this part of myself and I can um, bring this into alignment with my values rather than into alignment with capitalist values by allowing myself to feel those moments of inspiration. When something comes up and it's like, lightning bolt, do this work, I can nourish this worker bee part of myself by saying, yeah, that's exciting, I am gonna do that. And some of my favorite projects have come out of moments like that. Like I'm thinking about, um, I run a project called the Letters of Support for the Trans Community. That project was pulled together in three hours after I woke up at 3 a.m in Adelaide, Australia, where I was there for a teaching block in the master's program and the Trump memo um, leaked about the, the, the massive, the, not the beginning, but like an escalation of trans antagonistic actions on the part of the government. Um, that was the lightning bolt. That was my eight of wands moment. And I pulled this project together. And just last week I printed the booklet that pulls together you know, 24 pages of letters that people have sent into this project. And now I'm mailing that booklet out to people. So like that's, that's nourishment there. Um, but then in my, how can I nurture this part of my story and myself? Um, I'm, I'm drawing from the wild unknown tarot deck here. And so I have the father of swords and he is a very intimidating looking owl standing on a rainbow sword. And so part of how I can nurture this worker part of myself and keep it in alignment with my own values rather than capitalist values is by like wielding a bit of a sword, being a bit careful about what I take in and what I cut out of my life when it comes to this work. Where am I making choices about the work that I'm doing and am I relying on my own insider knowledge into what I need? Like, where's that sword and who is it cutting? Because it should be cutting away what doesn't work for me rather than actually like stabbing myself on the work. So there's something very nurturing about being willing to cut ties to work that is not serving me and that's out of alignment with my own values. So that's that spread for me. Did you want to talk about your spread? Well, selfishly, I want you to talk about my spread. <laughs> um, yeah, I, because actually I'm looking at this, I see how resonant it is and I can speak to it, but only I, uh, in fragments. Uh, it would take me a while to sink this in. Um, Do you want me it's to? It's perfect. Would you like to? Could I? And then you can tell me what you would add or shift because you are the insider into your own experience. Yeah, that would be super. Let's do that. Okay, just to clarify. This, this is first, second, third. Okay, so part of your story or who you are is the Four of Cups. So in this deck, the Four of Cups is um, a little mouse or rat on top of four cups. And I often think of this card as being about 
Sometimes it's called scarcity and sometimes it's about conserving, reserving what we need in order to support our own lives. There's always something about knowing that you might not have enough, needing to keep what you have, kind of to to protect that, especially in this deck, not in every deck, but in this deck particularly, it really feels like that little mouse is protecting what it knows will support its life going forward. Second? Second. Second. Okay, so how to nourish this part of your life. Oh my gosh. Right, it's so great. <laughs> so how to nourish this part of your story or your life is the Five of Cups. I think of this as the Sad Horse card. I love this card. Um, so in this deck, there are five cups above the horse's head and the horse is looking down. One of the common interpretations of this card is that um, it's grief that has gone on for too long. But the way I prefer to think about this card is that grief actually can be an incredibly nourishing practice if we la allow ourselves to feel it. There is value in letting your head hang. There is value in knowing that the cups will be there when you're ready for them. And rather than beating yourself up for not being able to access them right now, just knowing that when you're ready to look up, they'll be there. And I think in terms of how this nourishes a sense of maybe sometimes scarcity, maybe sometimes needing to protect those cups, like you can nourish and respond generously to that part of yourself by just allowing the grief to be there. And then how do you nurture that, um, that part of your story that is needing to protect the things that will keep you alive? You have the magician, which is um, a major arcana card. It is, it includes all of the suits in that card. It's a card about, it's, it's a little hilarious because um, the magician is basically about alchemizing what is around you into what you need. So that part of you that is um, sometimes dealing with real scarcity and maybe often feeling like you need to protect what keeps you alive, you can nurture that part of your story by knowing that you actually have incredible magic available to you. You have all of the suits at your disposal. You have the ability to bring what you need into being and you're actually doing that already. And when I think about what that little mouse is doing with those cups, building future safety by protecting it, like that is a kind of magic as well. So that's how I would interpret those. What would you add to mm. that or change or shift? That's so generous. Thank you very much for doing that. Um, well, a thing that I'm noting or the ways in which this is resonating for me is that um, I can, uh, many people do, once you have told a story about yourself for long enough, it can become the story about yourself mm -hmm. or you can have attachment to it that is uncomfortable. And so my relationship to scarcity is a, is a story that I'm constantly negotiating. And one thing that's on this card is uh, the moon. The moon is illuminating this card. And so I want to talk about that at a future point, I mean, even later in this episode. Um, 
about um, the luminaries in astrology. I have a nocturnal chart, a moon-dominated chart, and my moon is in Cancer in the 12th house, um, which some astrologers would interpret, especially within the context of the rest of my chart, to actually indicate a relationship to a particular type of scarcity, uh, specifically around institutionalization madness. So, um, anyway, um, as I said really early in the episode, when I consider my relationship to disability and experiencing disability, pathology, etc., there is a, a relationship between disability and scarcity um, that has had to live in a very uh, specific narrative, um, a very specific series of narratives. So there's the social narrative, there's my personal narrative, there's the narrative that interlocutes the two, there's the narrative associated with um, going through the process of accessing benefits, support, etc. And so it's a narrative that it's been unsafe for me to offer play to or wiggle to um, in a very real way. Um, I ended my marriage. I, you know, am not financially solvent <laughs> without support and I'm supporting young children. So, you know, there are very real stakes. Um, and so it's been a frightening thing to consider when I look at this mouse. I think of this mouse as actually that there's like maybe a, a delicious piece of food on the other side of the cups and the mouse has to traverse the cups without spilling or yeah. dropping any so as not to attract sound, uh, so as to not get caught um, in the yeah. middle of the night getting the food that it needs. And um, when I think about what I can do with that story, there isn't a lot of wiggle. It's a story I've been considering very deeply for about two years now, three years actually, um, and the, the work that comes up always, always, always is grief work. And grief work is, um, again, very dynamic. We don't just grieve in one way. Grief isn't just the acute experience of grief, you know, just slightly past a catastrophe. It's the ongoing process of leave-taking. And, you know, when I look at this card and you see these cups and they're so brightly lit and the horse's head is, you know, in darkness, um, I think about that like cliched saying about you, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink, <laughs> this kind of thing. And there is something about grief work that is very much about that. And that intersects with my, my body um, in that, you know, as a trans person, I've been on testosterone now for some time, over a year, less than two. Um, and that has shifted my ability to uh, access my emotions. Like, I can't cry. I haven't been able to cry. In, since shortly after I started, and it's not that I haven't felt the need to cry, it's that I just cannot, um, and I miss it. Uh, and so there's a whole way of my understanding grief that is quite different in a body bathed in testosterone than when I lived in a body bathed in estrogen. Um, and for myself as a non-binary person, there's a lot for me to consider about that both-bodiedness. And... Um, when I think about nourishing, when I think about grief as nourishment, I think about the grieving process and how the grieving process allows from, you know, sips of these cups that, that, uh, or they drip. It's the water of life that comes to you. Um, the horse isn't seeking that water. Um, so 
I think about how it is actually um, such an appropriate way for me to generate. Like, for many people, they consider grief as something that stops generation, that it that you freeze in grief, but actually for me, grief is how I move out of a story that doesn't serve. So that's really helpful. And then one of the stories that we've talked about, you and I, in fact, um, that I've been working on too is, I like being a magician. I like making something out of nothing. I like, um, I, I, I love work, when I worked as a high school teacher, I, I would love really elaborate, thorough planning so that students could move through the material of their own accord. I didn't have to teach it, and I didn't leave them in the deep end of the material mm -hmm. that they could access it from different points of um, intelligence. I'm putting that in quotes because it comes from multiple intelligence theory in education, but um, they could access it from different points, and they can move through it in the way that they needed to move through it. But of course, it's actually a lot of work to do that, or likewise when I was a doula, I really, when I thought of my role as a birth doula in a birth room, I felt successful in a birth not when a birthing human was grateful to me. I felt successful in the moment a birthing human would look up holding their slippery baby and saying, I did it, with that I being primary. And I, I wanted to be necessary, of course, but invisible, like air, which is, I think, a Margaret Atwood. I'm stealing from Margaret Atwood, which I don't mind doing because I'm frustrated with her right now. But, um, <laughs> sorry, 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 like you're listening. Um, anyways, and I like that in partnership. I like that in my relationships. I like to surprise people with just the right something at just the right moment. But one thing that I learned in doing that is if you're good at being a magician, then nobody sees the magician. They see what has been produced and there can be both an expectation set up and a demand. Mm -hmm. um, and not that a person would impose a demand necessarily, although I think that does happen, but I could end up demanding of myself. And this is that question of, do you give all that you have or do you give all that you have to give? And there's like such a difference to those two things. And to learn about being a magician in my life for the things that I love um, and the people that I love, but including myself. So the magician is the ultimate outsider because um, they, if they do it well, are they're a character like a Leo Rising, like myself, for example. They're a character, David Copperfield, David Blake. Like all those people are personas, but that's a crafted persona that facilitates this experience of magic for the audience, this experience of illusion that is so real, it's real. Um, and it produces real wonder and real awe. And then there's a way to be of the magic. And so I find myself, you know, part of my like, yay, I made it to 40 and I'm continuing is like to allow myself to be inside the magic um, that I'm creating for other people. So it just is such a really nice um, way to consider this story and it's really it's why my eyes are like my eyes are half closed and I can't I can barely access language it's almost like being in therapy <laughs> so um, it's a very helpful shift it's a it's exact right timing that I needed to consider these cards so thank you yeah thank you mm. and uh, if any of our listeners um, 
decide to try the spread out. You may have gathered from hearing us talking about which card was which that you can lay the spread many ways. I read it left to right, Nathan read it um, first card in the center, so you can do that however that works for you. And I would love to hear how the spread um, turns out for you. What are the stories that come up for you and how does it feel to think about those in terms of nurturing and nourishing? Um, another point to add is that, you know, um, Tiffany has talked about using this specific deck and Tiffany has numerous decks and lots of people who read tarot have numerous decks, um, but you do not have to buy a, mm. a specially accessed deck. Um, you can use a deck of playing cards. Um, if you want to access the four suits and you can, you know, find that easily online, just basic information about the four suits. Um, but also, um, if you're interested in learning about tarot, you can consider there's something called the Major Arcana and the Minor. So the Magician card that Tiffany introduced, that's Major Arcana and 21 mm -hmm. of those plus the zero. No, not the zero. I've been using the fountain lately, so now I don't even know. You know I should know this. I know, right? Anyways, there's 21 or 22, somewhere in there. Um, depending on what deck you're using and what you believe. Anyways, but also there is a standard number that neither of us are accessing right now, and that is fine. I'm it's like fine. I'm 80% sure it's 21. Yeah, me too. We're going with that. The world is XXI, 21. Yeah. But there's the zero. So then it's zero, 22. So there's 22. Yeah. Unless you're using the fountain, then there's 23. So, yes. anyways, um, there's the major arcana cards and then the minor. So... The minor are of four suits, exactly like a deck of playing cards. The major, you can simply write 0 through 22 and select, and then read on the archetype that you select. So 1 is always the magician, 2 is always the high priestess, 3 or some interpretation of it, etc., etc. So um, it's, an, it's a way into tarot without having to buy a specialized deck. Also, um, there are numerous apps you can mm -hmm. use on the phone. You can download tarot apps on your phone. There's um, random tarot... Uh, generators online so again you don't have to spend money to access yeah. this knowledge at all if you have an internet connection um, but obviously if you're listening to this you have an internet connection so um, yeah I just wanted to, yeah. to add that there um, we're gonna follow this segment up I'm gonna offer some astrological practices one for people who either um, are leery of astrology or new to astrology curious about astrology but don't know much about it and one um, more of a conversation for astro nerds and those will be in the segments upcoming but at this point I'm going to take my leave of Tiffany so that we can both be parental parents and put <laughs> our children to bed um, and uh, and go from there so is there are there any closing words you want to offer? Uh, no I'm actually just really excited about this and um, I appreciated the space to jump in on the second episode rather than the first because last week was a big week for me. Um, yeah, and I am looking forward to this journey. Thank you, and thank you so much for being a part <laughs> of it. And I do want to just take a moment. Um, there is somebody who is not in this room with us, who is mm -hmm. always in this room with us. Um, so I just want to take a moment to acknowledge our beloved Stasha. Yes. Who is the most earthbound magical person I have ever known and hope to ever meet like having been in Stasha's presence in any way I I mean I don't I don't need another example of this yeah. archetype of human in my life 
in this lifetime. <laughs> um, anyways, so Stasha, um, Stasha actually drew Tiffany and I together because once upon a time, Stasha was doing a PhD and needed to get through it and decided to write herself 100 love letters. And she did this in private, but at some point she started posting some of these love letters that she wrote on social media and both Tiffany and I gravitated toward them. We were both in our own um, spaces in life and not connected really to one another, mm -hmm. um, needing something like that. And we decided at the same time that we would write ourselves 100 love letters. And so we did do that. Um, we each wrote 100 love letters to ourselves and we made it a social media project and interacted with each other on it. And then the three of us got together and created a project called Tender Year, wherein we did daily practices and we observed moon ritual together when we could and together separately when we couldn't get together physically. And those two projects are the reason this project exists. And yeah. uh, so I just want to take a moment to um, acknowledge Stasha and to just thank her so, so thoroughly. Um, yeah, Stasha is like, when I was in, in Adelaide for teaching blocks in, in my master's program, I constantly referenced the work that she has done around um, inhabiting multiple true stories because more than anybody else that I know, she makes visible what it means to be in two places at once, to be, um, to, to exist across class divides and to inhabit pathologized bodies while also inhabiting um, the, the researching PhD body to talk about what that means to be on both sides of a thing to be as she puts it a veggie burger with bacon um, and her practices of binary breaking and angry resistance and joyfulness and playfulness um, have actually like changed my life mm -hmm. which is a cliche but in this case so true so mm -hmm. absolutely Stasha is present in in this room and in this project and like throughout my life well and is the actually a perfect representative of the the first house in my life as well I would say that that um, I credit many people with saving my life I know that I've done the work of saving my life but my life would not be what it is. I would not assign value to my life in the way that I do if it wasn't for Stasha and if it wasn't for you um, and the work that we've all mm -hmm. done together. So, mm -hmm. Anyway, I'll link to um, any of Stasha's work I can find as well on the website. Um, but Stasha is uh, named on the website um, um, as well, anyways, existing. So uh, you can see that on the website and I'll link on this under this episode as well. All right. Well, thank you, friend. Thank you. All right. I look forward to connecting with you here soon. Yes. Okay. Bye. Bye. I pulled out my recording equipment to uh, put together those astrological segments mentioned earlier in the episode. But as I sit down, I find myself so satiated on what has already been shared. I'm going to move those segments to next week. Thanks for understanding. <laughs> Our learning curve is quite something as this process unfolds, hey? Eh? <laughs>
It is Thursday, and we are alive. May you love and be loved. May the division between self and non-self be distinct enough to know and do your own work, and connected enough to see and know how your work impacts and uplifts us all. Thank you for it. Thank you for you. And thanks for listening. See you next week on Gathering Space.